the um, fetching uh, belt I've got around the waist this morning. It's like a tool belt, isn't it? That's what made me look like Superman, don't you think? Yeah? <laughs> I'm trying to make myself look like Superman. <laughs> it's like a battery. It's like having a battery on your back, like Duracell, to keep you going, isn't it? So uh, I need to have a little bit of time. Uh, can you remember a, a couple of weeks ago I told you about the squirrel? In the, uh, do you remember? Has anybody seen this squirrel? Or is it just me that sees the squirrel? Yeah. Does that squirrel have a death wish or is it just me? Because every time I come up the drive, I am not joking, this squirrel runs straight across in front of the car. That's three weeks in a row now. I don't know what's happening, but um, just thought I'd share that with you at the beginning of the sermon, okay? Watch out for that squirrel. He's got a death wish. Okay, so good morning, everybody. What we're going to be talking about today uh, is um, Gad the Seer. Now, uh, as you know, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at one or two uh, prophets, minor prophets. And, of course, Tim has taken those minor prophets, Haggai and uh, Zephaniah, you may have heard of, because they've got books named after them. And then we get this person called Gad. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, I'm not really sure if I even know who Gad is. Because like, when I hear the word Gad, I don't know about you, but I normally associate it with a condition called generalized anxiety disorder. And when I realize how much material is available on Gad in the Bible from which to prepare a sermon, I have a bit of anxiety, <laughs> I, must, I must say, myself. So Gad himself is such a minor prophet that you may not have heard of him at all. Now, you may have heard, like I have, of Gad, who was one of the sons of Jacob, and it was a tribe of Israel. Do you, do you know that, Gad? Well, it's not him. Okay, it's not him. So who then is Gad the seer? Well, we first come across him in 1 Samuel 22, verse 5. He's an advisor to David, who was on the run from King Saul. David had been staying in a stronghold in a place called Moab. Now, Moab, all these territories here about in the Bible, don't we? Moab was a territory which is in modern-day Jordan. It's to the east of the Dead Sea, just to get your geography. That's where David was, in, uh, holed up in this stronghold. And so what we get is the Bible says, then the prophet Gad, this is in 1 Samuel 22, verse 5, then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in this stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Well, there's a lot of information there, isn't there? So Gad is not mentioned again until David took the throne as the king of Israel, uh, and Gad is named as his seer or prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Now at that time, kings had specific what they call seers or prophets who they sought um, really for counsel. But it wasn't the counsel that you and I would think about. In other words, it wasn't good advice. It was actually, what is God saying? Now, when you think about that, that is quite some responsibility, isn't it? Would you like to be a seer who goes up to a king and says, the, ki the king goes to the seer and he says, uh, do you think we need to go to war? And the, the seer says, uh, mm, uh, let, me, let me just uh, go go to God and ask him. God, he needed to be right, didn't he, when he came back with that answer. And so seers 
were uh, taken up by kings, a bit like our government would have advisory councils to advise them on different things. But We've got an alternative, isn't it? Okay, right. So then, where was I? So the kings basically had these seers or prophets uh, which uh, were to represent God's counsel and not merely just present uh, good advice. Uh, but what a massive, massive responsibilities. And seers were not always trustworthy. Uh, you know, when we read in Jeremiah, there's, there's a, a place in Jeremiah uh, which talks about how the Lord brought judgment on those who spoke from their own authority things that people wanted to hear uh, rather than what God was saying. And I think about our prophetic ministry sometimes, and it, it, it makes, us, makes me, uh, the, the, the enormity of that comes on, doesn't it, when it comes to our own uh, prophetic ministry. However, Gad, it appears, was an honorable man, and he faithfully uh, represented God in the words uh, that he brought to David. And he was clearly trusted by David because he stayed with him, throughout his entire reign. Uh, there is mention of Gad again in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 29, which says this. It says, Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. A lot more information there as well, isn't there? Okay, so this indicates that Gad himself wrote the history of David's life uh, which doesn't form part of the canon of Scripture, but contains additional information about David's life. And there are a number of these books which are referred to in the Bible, many of which are lost texts or are preserved in Jewish kind of antiquity. Now, you can find some interesting information and a text of the book of Gad, which apparently contains 14 chapters. I've read some of it but I'm not sure how reliable the information is, so I'm not going to refer to it today. You know, you've got to be careful for fake news. When you're, when you're looking at the internet, they say something like 95% of what you read on the internet is not factually correct. And I don't even know if that is factually correct. <laughs> so we have to be so careful. Uh, and it's not in the canon of Scripture, so I'm not going to use it this morning. So we could, uh, we could have read some of that book, but we're not going to. Now, there is one particular incident in the life of David where Gad is mentioned, and this is found in parallel scriptures in both 2 Samuel 24 and in 1 Chronicles 21. I think if you've got a, a slide deck, if you can just put up the, the first part of, uh, just the first part of 1 Chronicles uh, 21. And uh, we're going to read from 1 Chronicles 21. What I mean in terms of parallel scriptures, you'll find that a lot of Samuel is exactly the same as Chronicles. So what you read in Samuel will be identical to what you read in Chronicles, uh, with some slight alterations occasionally. So we're going to read from this. I hope I've got the same uh, translation. Uh, yes, I have, I think, yeah. So it says this. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel 
and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my Lord the king, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. It took nine months, incidentally. In all Israel, there were 1.1 million men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel, verse 7. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And this is where the gag comes in. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad, so, so Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress, and wouldn't you be? Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Now let's take a pause here for a second. You might say at this point, what was the big deal with David taking a census of the people? Because we have censuses every 10 years, don't we? What's wrong with counting your troops and your people? What, what's wrong with that? Well, uh, to, uh, to understand the seriousness, you've got to understand the context of the day. In those days, a man only had authority and the right to count or number that which belonged to him. So Israel didn't belong to God, uh, didn't belong to David, it belonged to God. And so what David was doing is he was numbering something which didn't belong to him. And in Exodus, God told Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on, come on them when you number them. It was up to God to command the census, and if David counted, he should only do it at God's command, receiving a ransom to atone for the counting. And that is why God was angry with David, and why David was conscience-stricken after he counted Israel, because what he had done was wrong, and he knew it was wrong. But you see, the law required that there had to be a consequence for his action. Which is why when David receives the word from the prophet Gad, he doesn't appear surprised. He's distressed, but he's not surprised. Now, what a choice. What a choice. Think about this choice. Okay, you've got this choice to make. 
you've got three years of famine, three months of war, where your enemies will win every battle, or three days of pestilence. Well, you might think, well, three days sounds better than three months and three years, wouldn't you? But David's response was this, and it was because of his heart towards God. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And he said this, David's response, verse 13, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but don't let me fall into the hand of man. And so if we look at those first two choices, David would have been at the mercy of man. Because in a famine, he would have had to approach neighboring countries for food. And they may have refused him. In a war with his enemies, he would be reliant upon how ruthless they were going to be with how they dealt with Israel. So he chose option three, for this was reliant upon the mercy of God who was bringing the pestilence, not reliant on man. So let's just read on and see what happened as a result of that. Are you with me so far? Okay. Verse 14. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces, and David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against, O Lord my God, be against, sorry, let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. There's a lot to think about here, isn't there? Firstly, the judgment of God is not pretty, is it? It's not pretty. And seeing the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with a drawn sword must have been terrifying, wasn't it? Terrifying. And I was reading this, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking probably what you're thinking. And that is that sometimes we don't fully understand why the judgment of God has to be so severe. And that is because we don't really get the enormity of our sin. We are on a different plane in terms of our understanding of God's attitude to sin. I've been doing a, a study of Ecclesiastes, and I mentioned this in, in life groups this week. There's a bit... Right at the end of Ecclesiastes, after Solomon, who was uh, David's son, had written this book, which is a, about life and all the trials of life and vanity and vanity, all his vanity, he wrote this interesting book about life. Right at the end, he says this. He says, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter about life. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And I think that's probably the wisest thing that we can do 
as Christians and believers, and as the world as well, fear God. Revere God. See who he is and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So then, the reason David took this census is because he was proud, basically. He had become great and had become less reliant on God and more reliant upon his army. He wanted to know how big and important Israel was. Now, sometimes knowing you've got a lot of resource can make you feel proud and encouraged to do things in your own strength. And I think we may feel that sometimes. We feel, I'm good at that, I can do that. And we do things in our own strength rather than relying on God's spirit. But, you know, David wanted to number his army because it felt good to brag about having a big army. Whilst Joab tried to persuade him that this was a bad idea, David overruled him because he couldn't be wrong. And pride is one of those areas, isn't it, mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible and probably many more times. I've read a hundred things about pride when I was preparing. I didn't go on beyond that, but that's the hundred I read. It's one of the most destructive of all activities, and every one of us here in this room is prone to it. Every single one of us. And if you don't think you are, there we are. There you have it, the pride, okay? Even David, who was described by God as a man after his own heart, had pride in his heart. It's interesting that approximately 20% of all references to pride in the Bible are written by Solomon, David's son. Proverbs 11 verse 2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's where we get pride comes before a fall. Proverbs 16 verse 5 said, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord and be assured he will not go unpunished. And James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. He literally puts barriers in front of the proud to stop them working, but gives grace to the humble. So God through Gad the prophet encourages us to put it right. And take responsibility for our sin, particularly pride. But for there are always consequences when we don't. And let us not be too proud to accept his correction. Now, I did a little bit of study on pride. And we're all in the same boat here, folks. So nobody's looking at anybody else because we're all in the same boat. Because it's amazing how when we hear the word pride, we automatically think about other people. Do you notice that? one of those things. Here are some characteristics of pride in people. This is an uncomfortable list, all right? But I want you to look at yourself because you can only look at yourself. And I ask the Holy Spirit to prompt you. Here are some characteristics of pride in people. Being blind and unable to see pride in themselves. Self-reliant. Feeling superior to others. They judge themselves by their motives and others by their actions. Feeling unthankful. Resisting authority and being unable to submit to it. 
being consumed with what others think about them, being devastated by criticism, being unteachable. We talked about that a few weeks ago, didn't we? Seeking the adulation of others, being defensive and easily offended and un unenthusiastic and threatened by the success of others. You could go through that list. I'm asking you to look, look at your own heart honestly before God and ask yourself, have I never been one of those or two of those or three of those or all of those? Yeah? I'm not into cyclical quotations. You know, on, on Facebook, you get all these quotations that, that make your philosophy and all that. I'm not into those. I, I, I'm not. But here's one for you. Okay. It, it is a bit sickly. But it says this. The only person you should try to be better than is the person you were yesterday. Well, there we are. That's true, isn't it? Because we are not here to be better than others. Okay, so... That's all we hear about Gad and his input into David's life. But let's look at the end of the story and then consider the application for us in the 21st century Vine Church. Let's just go on. Verse 18 says this. Now the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at uh, Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. And now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And wouldn't you do that? Can you imagine threshing wheat and suddenly the angel's there with his sword drawn and that is the, the edge of where he's come to so far, having destroyed everything behind him. That is not a good place to be, is it? If you're Ornan the Jebusite. And that's why his sons hid away. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, take it. Take the take my land. <laughs> Just take it. Don't pay me for it. Just take it. Take it. Let my Lord the King do what seems good to him. See, I, I'll give you the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I think that's a noble statement by David because that, that's not the first time David says that in the Bible. He very often says that. He, he knew that he took responsibility for things. He did the right thing. And there's a bit which goes on in, in, in this text which says, and the angel, as God said to the angel, stop. And it says the angel put his sword back in his sheath. Oh, that must have been, <laughs> that must have been a relief, huh? That must have been a relief for Ornan the Jebusite. So then 
the life of the prophet Gad. Let's, let's just think about it. Let's just recap. It wasn't to deliver a message of gloom and doom to David, but to remind him of the holiness and the supremacy of God, that he is a righteous judge who detests sin. But in his love and desire for us, he provides a way of reconciliation and restoration. You say, God, gosh, Dave, that's hard. That's hard. Well, let's consider the three, three main areas of application for us. What can we learn from Gad and what can we learn and how should we apply this to our lives? Firstly, Gad was with David when he was a fugitive on the run. He was running from King Saul and David and his men were hiding in a stronghold. And despite it being a stronghold, Gad advised David to move because he was in danger there. And that actually saved David's life. It saved David's life, but it also gave him this wonderful relationship with the men around him. And he built a lot of trust and a lot of um, alliances and allegiances around him because he moved from where he was. Now, sometimes we find ourselves in a dangerous place. And we have to move for our own safety. This is the application. Ask yourself this question today and allow the Holy Spirit to prompt you. In my life, where is my dangerous place? Where am I most liable to be tempted by the enemy? Where is the enemy likely to find me when I am disappointed or discouraged? Am I angry with God or his people? Am I obstructing his work by not submitting to his call? Do I feel I'm beyond redemption, that I've messed up so many times that I'm beyond help? It's time to move from that place. It's time to move from that place. That's the application here. It's time to move from that place. Secondly, David made a big mistake because he became less God-reliant and more self-reliant. And pride and self-sufficiency is directly opposed to God's plan for us and his church. The prophet Gad makes it clear that there are always consequences for our sin. We must take responsibility for it if we are to escape God's judgment and seek his forgiveness and mercy. Point two, point three. Under God's leading, Gad told David to build an altar at the point where God's mercy was shown. If you look in the Bible and you see where the altar, there, there's some parallels here, here with where Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor was. Was it the same place as Moses sacrificed Isaac or went to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, which then would be almost the identical place where Jesus went to Calvary for you and I. And God's mercy was shown right there, right there. This was David's opportunity to restore his relationship with God, to move from death to life, to get back on track, refocusing on his reliance on God. This was God reaching out in mercy and forgiveness. And God is calling us this morning, all of us here, 
to be saved and restored, whoever we are. He's always calling us to be saved and restored. None of us are immune. Romans 3 verse 23, you'll know some of these scriptures maybe really well. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. Romans 6 23 said, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The message that Gad brought hasn't changed. It's exactly the same today as it was 3,000 years ago. The difference, however, is that in order to resolve the matter once and for all and to show his commitment to us, God has provided the sacrifice for the ultimate. He gave his son, Christ Jesus, to die because of his commitment to you and I. He doesn't want you to die. He doesn't want you to have pestilence. He doesn't want you to have a bad life. He doesn't, that's not his heart for you. His heart is reaching out always for a restoration. In Romans 5 verse 8, it says this, and you'll know this well as well. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy against my sin, which is so detestable in your sight that it needed a saviour like you to come and take it away. And you know, when you read the Old Testament, gosh, it, it, make, it, it gives you a, a different aspect of what sin is all about and the judgment of God. But when you read the New Testament, you read how Christ gave his life. And that's why uh, Christ's death was so agonizing, because it had to show to people, it had to show to people the seriousness of our sin. But I would say to you this morning, God is calling you. You don't have to receive God's judgment. God is calling you today. And if you want to receive him as your Lord and Savior and be in that safe place, and like Gad said, move out of the dangerous place into the safe place, you can receive him as your Lord and Savior right now, this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for the sacrifice you made for us on Calvary. I pray, Lord God, that we submit our lives to you and, and we say, Lord, forgive us for our pride and forgive us when we stand against you. And forgive us, Lord, when we say as well, we can't come to you because sometimes we're proud and we, we don't want to come to you because we want to be in control. Lord, I just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would fall and come into this place, into the hearts of individuals. We want to be in that safe place today. And we want to receive your Holy Spirit. We want to know that you are for us and not against us. So Lord, I pray this morning for every single person in this room, where there is sin, 
then, Lord, I pray there would come your forgiveness as we come to you and ask. You say, Lord, when we come to you and ask, you are ready to give and willing to give. So I pray that that would be our experience this morning, that we would come to that place that we might receive grace and mercy from you. I prefer grace, Lord, to what I hear about your judgment. Your judgment makes me fear you, but your grace makes me love you and be grateful to you for all that you've done. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.